Welcome to the Reach College Podcast with your speaker, Pastor Taylor Gatt. He wasn't worried about the setting he was in. Everyone else is going along to get along and taking advantage of whatever's around them that will make them feel good. Okay, so we're going to finish up Colossians today. Uh, Next week, Krista Smith will be teaching for us, so be here to see her teach. Um, But yeah, so we're going to... We're going to finally, it took us eight weeks. Um, we're going to close out Colossians. Uh, so let's review. Uh, week one, we saw that this is Paul's letter to Colossae from the prison in Rome. Uh, this is essentially the first time that Paul's in prison in Rome. The second time Paul's in prison in Rome, um, we think that's when he is, is martyred. So this is his first time being in prison. Um, Papyrus, his disciple, has, uh, who is the pastor, or I believe the founding pastor of the church at Colossae, has come all the way to Rome to tell Paul about this uh, heresy that's beginning to crop up in the church that he's worried about. And uh, so Paul is writing this letter back to the church at Colossae to, to fight this heresy. Uh, the interesting thing about this letter is that the tone is quite a bit different than most of Paul's letters. Paul oftentimes is rebuking the people he's writing a letter to. And in this particular, um, in this particular letter, his tone is more: "You guys are doing a good job. You guys are Christians. You guys believe the right things. So don't let, don't let this heresy become a thing for you." Okay. So, and then we talked about in week one, kind of what set the tone for this entire um, series on Colossians. Uh, really, it's the tone of the Bible, and it's it's the thing we're going to focus on in this class, which is. Um, this idea of knowing God and, and being like Him. So we talked about knowing God is not about an intellectual knowing of God or knowing about God, but it's an actual relationship that you have with God, right? Um, so let me ask you this. What is the hallmark of, of a good relationship? When you see people who have a good relationship, um, it's about how well they know the other person. Right when you when when we see people who have been married, for instance, for decades, they know everything about each other. Um, this is why when you start off uh, in a dating relationship, for instance, what are you doing? You're you're getting to know that person. You start asking them right right the upfront. It's usually the silly questions: what's your favorite color and stuff like this, because you're trying to get to know them. Um, and it doesn't work backwards, right? Like you can get to know intellectually a lot of facts about a celebrity. It's called stalking. Uh, it's not the same as as having a relationship with that celebrity, actually knowing them as a friend, right? Um, so how do we know God? The same way that we know anybody that we have a relationship with, we spend time with Him. We spend time with His Spirit, in His Word, learning who He is. And we know, G- we know Jesus in the same way. We, we know Jesus by how, how much time we spend with Jesus. And Jesus is interesting because Jesus is actually, the Colossians says, the image of the invisible God, right? So the more we know Jesus, the more we know God because because Jesus was the visible representation of who God was or who God is. 
So what happens when you spend a lot of time with someone? You begin to act like them. You begin to mimic their behaviors and behave in the way that they behave. This, they tell you, you know, watch who you hang out with, right? Because that's who you're going to become. So the idea is that uh, the more time that you spend with God, the more that you will act like God. So you know God in relationship, in a deep way, so that you'll act like God. And when you act more like God, you understand and know Him more. So it's just this continual cycle of knowing God and acting like Him. And then we talked about specifically this class, right? We decided that what it takes to be in this class is not a college admission or enrollment letter. We're not stopping people at the door going, what school do you go to? You're not college? Get out of here. You're gone. No, the goal is this. When you graduate high school and you enter your 20s, essentially, this is the stage of your life where all of a sudden your faith has to be your faith. It's not your parents. No one's making you come here. I mean, ideally, right? I kind of hope someone is making you come here because this is where you need to be to, to start beginning to understand how to read His Word and how to know Him. But the reality is you are the only person that can make the decision to know God, to care about knowing God. So the question in this class is not whether or not you go to college. The question is this, what do I believe or how do I know Jesus? Do I even know Jesus? And how do I live that out? How do I act like Jesus? How do I behave like God? Week two, we saw the Christological hymn. Um, Paul basically establishes Jesus as the center of our faith, the only thing that matters. At the top alone, there does not share the spotlight. Jesus is the only thing. He says the fullness of God dwells in him. And I that has been such a crazy phrase for me as I've studied this book because part of what Paul's saying when he says the fullness of God dwelled in Jesus is that fulfillment, which is essentially what we're all chasing all the time with anything we do, fulfillment is only found in Jesus. There's nothing else that, that can fill that void or, or give you that sense of completeness. It's only Jesus. Then in week three, we saw glorious riches. So God himself. These are the only riches, by the way, that you get to take with you when you die. Right? Glorious riches is to receive who God is himself in your life. And that is the only thing that will move forward when you die. Week four, Paul begins to uh, talk about the heresy in more detail. He says basically that the, that the heresy is selling you a bunch of basic rules to be holier by. Right? And then the weird thing is after week four, he says uh, it's the, this heresy is selling you a bunch of rules. In week five and six, Paul gives us a do and a do not list. And so we're, there's this little bit of like, wait, I'm confused. When it's not about the rules, but you just gave me a list of what not to do and what to do. But if you look at that list, the interesting thing is everything on it is about the condition of your heart and how you treat the people around you. So it's not, uh, we, we talked about this idea of, um, you know, not working on the Sabbath. So I can't plow on the Sabbath. So if I'm dragging a stick behind me in the dirt, that's kind of like plowing. So now I'm working on the Sabbath. So I can't drag any sticks behind me on Sunday. That's a rule. That's the kind of thing that the Pharisees came up with to be holier. And Paul's like, it's not about dragging sticks behind you on the Sabbath. It's about how you treat people. The prophets actually say this over and over again. 
Sometimes the prophets literally go to the people of Israel and say, you're, you hold on to the fact that you're upholding the ceremonies and the sacrifices, but you treat people horribly, and God sees that, and he has rejected you. Because it's about the condition of our heart and how we treat other people. If I'm supposed to be like Christ, and Christ's defining character trait was how he loved people, then I can't be like Christ and hate people. It doesn't work that way. And then last week, Paul began to tell us about being in close relationships. He talked about the family. We talked about uh, work relationships. Paul is, again, he's just continuing on this line of how we treat others and how we um, live together. So go with me, if you will, to uh, Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. Starting in verse 2, it says, Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. All right. He says devote. Okay, so this is the idea of having a habit or being persistent. So constantly, it's not, uh, we know prayer without ceasing, but kind of what Paul's saying here is more like be about prayer every day. Don't, don't pray on Sunday and then wait until next Sunday. He's talking about having this habit of praying. Okay, let me ask you this. If you had a relationship with somebody and you talked to them once a week, how good do you think your relationship would be? Not great. I mean, we have friends that we keep that level of communication with. You'd know them. But it wouldn't be great. God's not interested in just kind of being your acquaintance. You pass on the hall and you go, oh, how you doing? I haven't seen you in a week. Oh, yeah, great. Fake friendship passed by, right? Like we just go, yep, doing good. See ya. No, that's not what God's looking for. He wants a real relationship with you. If you want a real relationship with somebody, you don't talk to them once a week. That's not a true relationship. He says, keeping alert. Okay, so partially this keeping alert phrase is Paul saying, don't phone it in. Don't just, you know, and this is phoning it in, right? Dear God, uh, bless me today and help me to do your will in Jesus' name, amen. Right? Like, like just this kind of lackadaisical thing we get into where we bless our food and we, and we check the block, right? Oh, yep. I prayed. No, he's saying don't phone it in. Uh, the other thing is that, that he's referencing that, that Christ could come at any moment. You can be that person that's about something else, that's kind of lackadaisically going through your life and your prayer life. Like, oh, I'll get serious about Jesus someday. And then all of a sudden he's here. And you didn't, you didn't spend any time with him. He says, have an attitude of thanksgiving. Listen, I'm, I'm going to keep this point short because I've, I have beat this to death in this series. But here's, Here's the reality. If you are not overwhelmed with what Jesus has done for you, and if you do not find that as a cause to be in thanksgiving to Him on a regular basis, there's a chance that you have never experienced it. Now, I'm not saying you haven't. You can be ungrateful for something you've gotten. But if you truly understand what you have received from Jesus, it will cause you to be grateful. Take some time to understand, A, if you have received that grace, and B, if you have, are you grateful for it? Look in verse 3. Praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the word, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I have also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to proclaim it. 
All right. He says, pray for us. Okay, he's in prison. So what what is he asking them to pray for? Release from prison? Better conditions? Better treatment? No. He's literally in prison, and the only thing he's asking for prayer for is opportunities to share the gospel. Paul was not defined by the four walls that surround him. Listen, in the course of your life, the circumstances that you find yourself sometimes trapped in, those change. They will change constantly. Some will be better and some will be worse. The question is, are you about what God is about? Because Paul recognized that even in prison, he was there for a reason, and that reason was to share the gospel and to share the name of Jesus Christ. He wasn't worried about the setting he was in. And honestly, we do this all the time. Well, if I just, if I was just in a different place, if I just had my, if I had my dream job, or if I was going to school where I wanted to go to school, then I could tell people about Jesus, because then I wouldn't be uh, unhappy, and then I wouldn't be dealing with all this other stress, and so I could talk about Jesus more. Paul was worried about one thing while he was in prison, and that was talking about Jesus. Talking about Jesus has nothing to do with the four walls surrounding you. And on that note, there are people that you come into circumstance with, and if you're not willing to tell them about Jesus in that circumstance with them, who will? They, that may be the four walls that they're in that they get to hear the name of Jesus. Paul also acknowledges that, that these opportunities are initiated by God. God opens the door for us to share the gospel. He wasn't burdened by creating the opportunity. He, what, what he was worried about was the boldness to take those opportunities, to proclaim them. God will literally open up windows and doors for you to tell people about Jesus. But oftentimes, it's uncomfortable. I, I don't know. I don't know that person. I'm busy with something else. Paul was saying, God's going to create the opportunity, but I'm, I need you to pray that I take the opportunity, that I will share the gospel. He says, uh, he talks about the mystery of Christ again. So, listen, I'm just going to briefly touch on this because we talked about this earlier in the series. What is the mystery of Christ? In the Old Testament, God can continually said from Genesis to tell we get to the New Testament where we see Jesus, God is saying, I have a way of salvation. I'm going to save you. I'm going to provide a way of escape. But what that was and what it looked like was the mystery. People in the Old Testament, they believed that God was going to save them, but how was, was lost on them. So when you see Jesus, when Jesus comes to earth and dies on the cross and is resurrected, he is revealing the mystery of how God has planned to save us through all of human history. Paul is fascinated by the revelation of this mystery, and that is what he wants to tell people. Paul says uh, that, that this is why he's in prison. He's in prison because of the mystery of Christ. What does that mean? It's essentially two things. One thing is, is in a very practical sense. The reality is that the Jews thought he was blaspheming God, so they were out to get him. And then on top of that, the Israelites actually had such a violent and negative reaction to the Roman rule that the Romans had granted them special status 
to not worship Caesar. This is crazy. Romans own the whole world at this point, basically. And the only people group that they conquered that was allowed to worship their God their way was the Jews. Now, what's happening is Paul, in a sense, is hijacking Judaism because Judaism naturally lends itself into the revelation of the Messiah in Jesus Christ. But the Jews are saying, this guy is worshiping a different God and he doesn't have special status to not worship Caesar. That's the legal charge they bring against him. They don't think they should worship Caesar. They're hypocrites, but they want to get Paul in trouble for this. So in a very literal way, he's in prison because he, because of the mystery of Jesus Christ that takes him out of the exemption of Judaism. And then in a very uh, spiritual way, he's in prison for the sake of sharing the gospel because getting in prison allowed Paul to go all the way to the emperor of Rome. The gospel was shared even up to the emperor's own household. We know that people that worked for the emperor got saved. Paul understood that the reason, if you will, that he was imprisoned for the gospel was to share it. It would have been really easy for Paul to say, uh, you know, I could share the gospel a lot better if I wasn't chained up. But that's not how Paul thought. Paul thought it doesn't matter what four walls surround me. My favorite part of this is verse 4. That I may make it clear in the same way that I ought to proclaim it. Okay, I want you to, I want you to really focus on verse 4 for a second. Paul. Paul. Probably one of the all-time greatest Christians, at least of the New Testament. Top three, right? Right up there with Peter and John, at, at least, right? Wrote a vast majority of the New Testament. And what is Paul burdened by? Making the gospel understood. Not just saying it out loud. Listen, you getting up in people's face and going, well, John 3.16 says, is not sharing the gospel. It's, it's physically you proclaiming the name of Jesus. But the point of proclaiming the gospel is that it would be understood by the hearer. So let me ask you this question. When was the last time you practiced sharing the gospel? So I used to go to BCMs on Monday night with Riley. Uh, uh, Pastor Riley is uh, the uh, BCM director of the North Campus. And at the end of every single Sunday or uh, Monday night, he has a student share the gospel. And it was eye-opening to me just how difficult that is. It doesn't just roll off the tongue. If you haven't practiced it, like you may have received it, and you may understand it intellectually, and then the moment somebody goes, well, what's that about? You go, uh, uh, Jesus, he saved us. Mm-hmm. You got to be ready. You got to be ready to make it understood, not just recite the Roman road, but actually explain it to somebody so that they can understand it. God is the one that makes it effective, all right? God is the one that makes you sharing the gospel effective. But you just kicking back isn't trusting God. We are called on to be prepared for the good works that God will lay out in front of us. Look in verse 5. Conduct yourselves with wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. All right, conduct yourself with wisdom. 
Are you watching how you act and display Christ? Are you actually paying attention to how your behavior points to Jesus? Because I'll tell you this right now. The world is watching you to see how your behavior doesn't display Christ. All of the time. Because you know what the most common thing people argue against Christianity is? Not what the Bible actually says. You find those people, usually they have a pretty bad understanding of what the Bible actually says. But that's not why people object to this a lot. People object to this because of Christians that they've seen living it out poorly. They object to this because they call us hypocrites. Well, the reality is the whole point of the Bible is, yeah, I'm not this. That's why I need Jesus, right? But that doesn't give me an excuse to walk around and be a terrible testimony for what Jesus is telling me to behave like. That is what gives people the excuse that, well, that I don't believe this because, because of the way that Christians are. They're, they're hateful or they're hypocritical. Well, 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 you know, there's nothing wrong with me, you know, telling a crude joke every now and again. There's nothing wrong with me um, watching this television show or having a beer with dinner. Okay, so you're making it about Christian liberty then. It's about your freedom to do something that isn't necessarily or technically sinful. But here's the deal. Is your comfort more important than that person's crisis? You are worried about being comfortable. Well, I have freedom to do X, Y, and Z. I have freedom to do this thing because it's not technically a sin and my heart's in the right place. Except your heart isn't in the right place because you've put your liberty to do something comfortable ahead of somebody else's eternity and the fact that they are going to hell. You've essentially looked them in the face and you said, well, if it's between you and me being comfortable, you can go to hell. Your comfort cannot be more important than other people's crisis. It's not about whether or not it's sin or not sin. That's why Paul doesn't say, don't sin while you're around outsiders. He says, be wise. Notice this is different. Sin and not sin is a, is a category, right? But there's also wise and unwise. Something that's unwise isn't necessarily sinful, but it's still stupid. It's still unwise. Paul says to be wise. Why? He says to make the most of the opportunity. Okay, think about it like this. What if somebody you come into contact, what if that was your only chance to share Jesus with them? What if that was it? That was your shot, but instead you cared more about this. You cared more about whatever your Christian liberty is, and now you've missed that opportunity for somebody else's eternity. Or what if Jesus comes back? How, how many of your friend groups do you hang out with on a regular basis and you're like, yeah, I'll tell them about Jesus. Like, I'll invite them to church someday. What happens if you don't have time? It's easy to think that the sun came up this morning, it's going to come up tomorrow morning. But there will be a day that is the last day. And you're not going to know it when it starts. Look at 6. Your speech must always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. All right. Someone's rude to you. You're uncomfortable because 
they're rude. So what do you do? You pop off. Tell them what's what. Because you being comfortable is more important than them knowing who Jesus is. You want to fit in with your friends, with your peer group, at school or wherever, so you tell a crude joke, you watch a crude show. You may have liberty to do that, but you've put your comfort of fitting in ahead of their crisis. What do you think turn the other cheek is even about? Listen, if you punch me in the face, I'm going to punch you back. That's my natural inclination. That's how the world works. And that's explicitly not what Jesus tells us to do. Because the whole point is, when I get punched in the face and instead I say, you know what? I'm going to put my comfort behind the fact that you need to know who Jesus is. People notice that kind of countercultural reaction to things. Is it weird when we won't participate in things that are relatively harmless or normal? It can be. That's kind of the point. Because everyone else is going along to get along and taking advantage of whatever's around them that will make them feel good for the next 10 minutes. And when you don't, they go, that's weird. What's his deal? What's her deal? What, what's she got that I don't have? It causes them to ask the question, and that's what allows you, when you do the turn the other cheek mentality, that is what allows you to spread the gospel of truth, the thing that all fullness is in, and say, yeah, I, that may not necessarily be bad, but it's not fulfilling. And I've got something that's actually fulfilling, something that actually completes me. He says, as though seasoned with salt. What does salt do? It preserves things so that they don't rot. Everyone around you is rotting to death. Everyone you come into that doesn't have Jesus is rotting from the inside out. At one time in your life, you were rotting. You needed the salt of the gospel to preserve you. And the people around you need that salt. The Bible says, the, this is how beautiful the, the gospel is. The Bible says that the feet, probably one of the ugliest parts of the human body, the Bible says the feet of the person who carries the gospel are beautiful. People need the gospel so much that even the ugly parts of you are beautiful when you show somebody the door to eternal life. That, that is a powerful statement. That's how much the world needs it. Paul says, so that you'll know how to respond to each person. Okay, I'm going to break this up into three people. The way I, I see it in general is that there are three categories of people that you will have to share the gospel with. Okay? Um, these are conditions of the heart, though. How are you going to know what a person is inside of these three categories? You're not really. You're going to have to trust the discernment of, of the Holy Spirit in you to guide you in that conversation. And ultimately, you need to be ready to have any of those three conversations. Because you could run into any of those people and you won't know. So those three people, there's three opportunities to share the gospel. One is a sowing opportunity. This is the person who, it's not going to click. But they need it to be marinated. People process things at different rates and in different ways. And some people, they need to hear it several times. They tell people in recruiting that Gen Z needs to hear something 11 to 15 times 
before they will make a decision. Yeah, it has. 11 to 15 for Gen Z right now. That's, that's worse than it was for millennials and every generation back before that. That means somebody may just need to hear it again. You're inching them closer to the end result when you share the gospel. But you have to be prepared for the reality that they may not want what you have to offer in that moment. And that's okay. Then the second type is reaping opportunities. This is the person that maybe they're at 10 of 11, and you're going to be the 11th person to share the gospel, and it's going to click. Or maybe they just, they finally hit that proverbial rock bottom. They're ready for something else to change because they have found the bitter end, the bottom. So you need to be prepared not to just share the gospel, but to walk that person through how to accept the gospel. And then the last one, the third one, is I call them defensive opportunities. I'm going to break this up into a couple categories. One is public attack, public defense. Think about it like this. A lot of times you hear somebody mouthing off about, well, Christianity is silly because X, Y, or Z, or the Bible doesn't say this, or there's a contradiction here. Now, I'm not telling you you have to have every answer. But here's the thing. What you normally do when you hear that is you go, you know what, that's none of my business. You want to be comfortable. We don't like conflict. But here's the thing. Think about it like this. You're not defending the gospel because of the person who's attacking it. If they're attacking it in public, you're defending it because of all the people that are hearing their attack. What if the person next to them, when you answer back, goes, huh, I guess there are some answers. I guess there are some things that Christians have answers to. I've always just assumed Right? It may not be the person that's directly attacking it, but you have to be prepared to defend the gospel on account of all the other people that need to know that we have a defense, that we have answers. Listen, if you're worried about being comfortable when it comes to that kind of conflict, I want to point you back to Stephen in Acts. I don't think Stephen was very comfortable while he was being stoned to death. But the reality is Stephen put his comfort aside because he knew that the people he was talking to needed to hear the gospel. And get this, Stephen and his discomfort changed the world. That's why it's recorded in the Bible. What an honor to be eternally kept in this word for putting other people ahead of your own life. The second kind of defensive opportunity is genuine misunderstanding. Listen, some people just don't get it. Sometimes you speaking up and defending the gospel is just enough for that person to go, huh, I've always thought that, but suddenly you gave me a good answer. And you again, you don't have to have every answer. The miraculous thing is God prepares you a lot of times for the exact situation you need to be in. If you are willing to have the conversation, you a lot of times will have the answer beforehand. And if you don't, it's okay to say, you know what, I don't have an answer to that, but I know there is one. Give me some time and I'll go find it for you. And then re-engage and defend it. And then the last one is, I call this pearls before swine. All right, hear me out. Some people do not want to hear the truth. Some people want your attention, your time, and your energy. They want to abuse the life that you have in you to make themselves feel better. Here's the reality. Sometimes 
the best thing you can do for somebody is pull back and let them feel the isolation of their life. Let them feel the rock bottom, right? Sometimes you're the only thing booing that person along, keeping them from drowning. And if you will let go and they get to feel what it means to be separated from God and alone, that may be what they need to be willing to hear it the next time, to have the genuine conversation. So the question is, how do you tell that person from the very first person, the sowing opportunity? You might say, well, I, I should just keep sharing the gospel with them. Okay, it's a matter of their heart. If somebody is trying to mock the gospel and abuse the gospel and abuse you in the process, the reality is you're not going to save anybody. You have to be willing to let the Holy Spirit do His work in that person's heart apart from you. And the only way you tell the difference is, is the discernment of the Holy Spirit. You, if you are seeking God, He will show you the conversations that are not worth having. The interesting thing is a lot of times the sowing opportunity people are strangers or somebody you're not comfortable with. The opposite, these people that abuse us are people that we're usually connected to. A lot of times it's a family member. A family member that you're so concerned with their eternity, you're so burdened for them that you can't bring yourself to let them make that decision. And sometimes when you finally pull back and you let them mull it over and realize that you're not at their beck and call to have this conversation, then all of a sudden they might be more interested in it in a genuine way. Are you ready for those conversations? Those are very serious and real conversations. And if you're not ready to have them, you need to be. You need to spend time preparing. Look at verse 7. As to all my affairs, uh, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord, will bring you information. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him is Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your own. They will inform you about the whole situation here. All right, so he's sending Tychicus and Onesimus back. Why? To complain and ask for favors? No, he says to encourage your hearts. Again, Paul is not defeated by the four walls surrounding him. You know anybody who only ever complains? Every time you ask them how their day or week went, it's just negativity. It's actually impossible to encourage them. It's like being friends with Eeyore. There's just no progress. You can't even, you can't even get them there because they're all gloom. If you are always complaining, if you are that person, you need to readjust your focus because it's on your four walls and it's not on what Jesus' purpose is for you. Look at verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings, and also Barnabas's cousin Mark, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. What am I doing on time? Okay. Let's talk about Barnabas's cousin Mark. This is John Mark. John Mark is the person that Paul disliked so much, it caused Paul and Barnabas, his best friend, to split ways. This is the same Mark, John Mark. Okay? So Paul previously had a real problem with this, with this, with John Mark. Church tradition, not scripture, church tradition tells us that 
John Mark's mother was the owner of the house that the upper room was in for the Last Supper, right? So the theory is that in, in, uh, on the night Jesus is arrested in the Gospel of Mark, there's a reference to an unnamed boy who is out in a sheet, and when somebody grabs at him, he runs away naked without the sheet. Okay? The, the theory is John Mark, as a young boy, at the home of the, of the Last Supper in the upper room, his mom's house, he wakes up, or he, he's, he's paying attention late at night as he's in bed, and all Jesus and all the disciples are headed out. So he throws on a sheet, and he follows them. And then he witnesses Jesus' arrest. This is that John Mark. So that John Mark, as a young boy, right, later he'll write the Gospel of Mark. What happens is the Gospel of Mark is, is Peter's perspective of the Gospel story, but John Mark was with Peter in Rome and and basically wrote the events as Peter tells them. But that John Mark is who Paul is talking about right here. Listen, some of you have some serious failures in your life. And, and the enemy wants you to get caught up in your failures and think that this is the thing that's going to keep you from following him fully or being able to tell people about Jesus. You're compromised. How would you have liked to have been on Paul's bad side? Paul, again, top three New Testament Christians, doesn't like you. Your failures don't define you. John Mark's failures didn't define him. We see here that Paul, as he's writing Colossians, has already reconciled with John Mark. There's another uh, letter in the Bible where Paul actually sends for John Mark and says, Send him to me because he has proven useful. Because he's helpful in the ministry. Your failures do not define you. But the enemy wants them to own you and tell you that you cannot do ministry. That you cannot help. And let's be real. There, the Bible tells us not to let anyone despise our youth. But the Christian life is about training. And you master something over sheer repetitions and time. John Mark was young, and he made mistakes. But he didn't just quit. He ends up writing the Gospel of Mark. It's massive. Don't let something that you've already done in your life, in your 20s or maybe in high school, determine that you can't be exactly who God has set you out to be. And by the way, I defy you to find a biblical character apart from Jesus that doesn't have massive failures. All of them. We, it's like we ignore that. Just read the Old Testament. You will look at the best people in the Bible and go, this guy's kind of messed up. It's constant. But then we write ourselves off. Look at 11. And also Jesus, who is called Justice... These are only, um, excuse me, these are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision, and they have proved to be an encouragement to me. Okay, this is real simple. I'm going to simplify this first. Paul's being persecuted by who? The Jews. So what he's saying here is that these uh, Jewish Christians that are involved in his ministry, they're an encouragement to him. He doesn't lose hope in the spreading of the gospel and the oppression of the Jews, 
Paul was burdened for the Jewish people. Part of the reason Paul was so burdened for the Jewish people is he said, of all the people in all of human history, they came the closest, and then they missed it. They, they, they had the entire Old Testament telling them what God was going to do. And then when God did it, they rejected it. What Paul is saying here is that he's saying that having these Jewish Christians around me is encouraging that God is not done with the Jewish people. Right? God has not given up on them. Look at verse 12. A papyrus, who is one of your own, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, sends you his greetings, always striving earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. For I testify for him that he has deep concern for you, and that those who are in Laodicea and Heropolis. Okay. Do you guys want to know why I wanted to become a pastor? I wanted to go into the ministry anywhere, really. Because I recently, like within the last couple of years, I figured out that this is all that matters. There's nothing else. There's no competing uh, thing in our whole life that matters more than, than the Word of God and the truth of the Gospel. And when I realized that, I'm kind of a, uh, all or nothing kind of person. I, I don't do much halfway. And when I figured out that this is it, this is the centerpiece, I couldn't do anything else but sell out. But do you know what I figured out being a pastor is half of the time? More than half of the time? It is begging people to surrender so they can experience true freedom. It is begging people to see that if you will recklessly abandon this world, recklessly, to an extent that other people go, what are you doing? If you will sell out 100%, nothing held back to what God says in this book, you will find a freedom and a true way to live your life that cannot be matched, it cannot be touched, and you will never go back. You will never change course. Even when I am tempted, when I begin to see the sin of my flesh crop back up, I have experienced the true freedom of this word so much that I can never go that way again. And being a pastor becomes this process of, of begging people who are still holding on to something, who are still tied up in knots over this world. If you will let go of that and follow Jesus... I cannot even begin to describe to you what you are going to find. Glorious riches. God Himself. Nothing else matches it. Nothing can compare to it. Nothing can compete with it. And I find myself begging people to believe that. The reason I bring this up is because this is what Paul is talking about a papyrus doing right now. What does a papyrus want for his people? It says he wants for them to be fully assured in the will of God. The phrase where it says deep concern, a papyrus has a deep concern. This is to be concerned to the point of pain. This is to be stressed for their eternity. He wants them to be fully assured in the will of God. 
Let me ask you this question. How many of you want to know God's will for your life? Right? Pretty natural. I'd like to know exactly what God has for me. But here's the thing. God's will for your life, it's not who you marry. It's not where you work. It's not where you go to school, where you live. It's not what car you own. None of that is God's will for your life. As a matter of fact, God's will for your life is spelled out in plain English in this book. God wants for you to glorify Him. He wants for you to spend time with Him, have a relationship with you, with Him. He wants you to know Him. Those are God's will for your life. Everything else, you'll figure it out. If you're walking with God in this, all that stuff pales into comparison. God's got all that worked out. The reality is, why is God going to tell you who you're going to marry and what dream job you're going to have when you won't do the stuff He's already told you to do in plain English? It's, it's spelled out right here in His book. If we won't do this, why do we suddenly expect that God's going to give us something else that's just, what, a distraction? Because that's ultimately what it is. He's saying a papyrus has this deep, painful concern for you. He wants you to be fully assured of God's will. You can be fully assured of God's will if you know Him in a personal way and are in His Word. The fact of the matter is, God's will for you is to know Him in a personal way. Look at 14. Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings, and Demas does also. Interestingly enough, just side note, Demas, um, this it's like this one weird phrase, Demas does also, kind of like Demas says hi too, right? We know that in about four or five years after Colossians, Demas abandons Paul. This is interesting to me that, that he's barely mentioned here. It's almost as if the problem is already under the surface. It's already simmering. She says, Demas does also greet the brothers and sisters who are in Laodicea and also Nympha and the church that is in her house. When this letter is read among you, have it also read to the church of the Laodiceans. And you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. Tell uh, Archippus, see to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, so that you may fulfill it. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. Paul ends this letter by saying, Remember my imprisonment. Do you guys realize that from the time of Jesus up until this very day, where you sit here and, and, and by the way, me too, right? I'm not, I'm not just saying you guys, right? But up to this very day, while we sit here in comfort and freedom and we study the Word of God, that there are people throughout the last 2,000 years who have suffered and died for the name of Jesus. When you talk about putting your comfort aside, Let's talk about what it means to truly suffer and die for this. The only thing that matters. Paul is saying, remember my suffering. 
Remember that this is worth it. Remember that the spreading of the gospel is the only thing that matters. Don't forget that this is hard. There is a theology that wants to sell you on this idea that when you come to know Jesus, it's going to be all Ferraris and health and money. That is a lie. That is a straight-up lie. And here's the thing. I've said this to you guys before. Do you want your rewards now so that they have an end end on them, a limit, when you die? You don't take any of them with you? Or do you want your rewards on the other side? Do you want your rewards after you die when you get to heaven and you get to be with God Himself for all of eternity and everything that He gives you will last eternally? The reality is that James describes our life now as a mist. You ever sprayed a a bottle in the air and just watch it completely disappear in a second? God says your entire life is like that in the spectrum of all eternity. Don't strive for comfort now. Don't strive to be in comfort and just be taken care of and happy all the time for this missed moment in all of eternity. Put your comfort aside. Remember Paul's imprisonment. Suffer for the gospel. Spread the gospel. And then someday, we'll live in true rest, true comfort, true, unhindered, just majesty with God in His presence. That's then. Right now, surrender fully to what this book has to say, and spread it. There are people that need to hear this truth. And and even us. I've heard people say, you know, well, the gospel message is not really for me. I'm already saved. Horrifying. The gospel is the only thing that should matter to any of us all the time. And it should cause you not only to sell out, but to be in thanksgiving and to share Jesus' name every opportunity of every day until you die. Hey guys, this is Philip Jackson, pastor of Young Adults at Evergreen Baptist Church. I want to invite you to come to Reach. We meet every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at Evergreen Church in South Tulsa, just east of Mingo on 111th Street. The mission of Reach Tulsa is to cultivate a young adult community that's defined by real transformation and the sincere pursuit of a godly life through training in biblical disciplines, personal development, and intentionally transitioning into independence as mature members of the body of Christ. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like and subscribe to our content. We're available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Reach Young Adult Ministry is a part of Evergreen Baptist Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information and additional lessons, please visit our website, evergreenbc.org.